Hi, and welcome to episode 124 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and I'm bringing you my conversation with the fabulous Marikit Santiago. A couple of weeks ago, I met up with Mary Kitt in her studio in Western Sydney, which is the garage of her apartment where she lives with her husband, Sean, and three children, Maela, Santiago, and Sarita. We, in fact, recorded this episode in that garage with the door open to the driveway, which is the exact setup when Mary Kitt is painting, pretty much exposed to anyone passing by. So you might hear some faint car sounds every now and then, but we were actually pretty lucky not to have too much interference with this recording. She's one of Australia's most impressive artists, colliding Renaissance-style representational painting with imagery drawn from mythology, religion, Disney, the supernatural, her Filipino heritage, and lots more. But it's all presented in a most unexpected way. Marikit won the Sulman Prize in 2020 with her painting The Divine, which is of her three children, and you'll hear in this conversation about how important their contribution is to her work. Apart from winning the Sulman, she's been a finalist in many other prizes, including the Archibald Prize twice. She's exhibited in six solo shows, but her upcoming exhibition called For Us Sinners at 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art in Sydney is her first institutional show, and it's curated by Michael Doe. It opens in only a few days, actually on the 26th of March, 2022. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com and I'll be uploading a video taken in Marikit's studio soon. I wanted to start off by congratulating you for surviving three months lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) In 2021 with three children under eight. (sighs) Yes. Um, So how did the the homeschooling go? Um, Well, Sean's work continued. Um, so he really had to focus on his work. And so I took on all of the homeschooling. Um, last year I had two students. The year before I only had one. So last year I had a kindergarten student and a year two student. So luckily my daughter in year two um, was quite independent and everything was online. Um, she would come to us if she had questions. But my kindergarten boy, I had to sit through the whole thing with him. Oh my god. And gosh. he did have two he had two Zooms daily, which I thought the teachers were very dedicated to provide that. And I at first I thought that's great, that's an hour where he can focus on his learning and I don't have to sit with him. But actually it turned out I did. I did need to sit there with him because then there'd be like assigned work after the Zoom that then I'd have to continue working with him. So we would do about the teachers were quite good. They were like they only assigned about three hours worth of work each day. So we would get through, I'd try and get through all of that work with both of them and then I'd come out here and I'd have maybe one or two hours to just get started on whatever I could do in that one or two hours. Um, And I would have the the kids out here playing with me as well. So when you say out here, we're we're sitting in your amazing studio, (laughs) which is actually your garage. Yes. Yeah, of your apartment. Um, and, uh, you know, another interesting thing I noticed on your Instagram page was that you um, did this amazing mural with the kids in their bedroom. Oh, yes. And I noticed that you actually, when you were a kid, your parents allowed you yes. to um, paint on paint your bedroom. directly onto my walls, yeah. That must have been really encouraging. Like, it's not that many parents would allow yeah. that, I wouldn't have thought. My parents were very encouraging of um, my interest in art, 
as a leisurely recreational thing. Um, when I when I was a kid, I grew up with the ambition of being a doctor. I had a very very clear path that I wanted to follow, and I wanted to be a doctor. And even though I really enjoyed art, that that was my goal. So I think because my parents knew that I had that goal, they were happy to encourage my interest in art because that was just going to be this, you know, this hobby thing on the side. Because um, your so dad's an architect. My, my dad's architect. an architect, yeah. My mum is the most amazing cook. I think that's where her creativity comes at. She, she would never admit to you that she was creative because I think people assume creativity only lies within the arts. But, yeah, my mum's also very creative and she's quite good at thinking of ways to problem solve which I think is also creativity but yeah so my parents would let me where did the doctor thing come from I always wanted to help people I think I um I did well academically so I thought you know if you if you can succeed academically then you can have these ambitions of high professions Mm. and yeah I always liked you know dressing um like bandaging my my teddy bears and things, and when my sister was born, she was she's eight years younger than me. I just love changing her nappy, and you know, I I just I lo- I love to like like care for people, and I thought you know a way to translate that would be through a profession like medicine. So I think I think because I had my my parents sort of knew okay she's got that ambition, we we approve of that. Do what you like with your art. So they let me paint on my walls. They let me paint on the wardrobes, on the inside and the outside. Oh, what did um, you paint? It depended on the age. I think I went through – there was one One mural was like all my favourite Disney characters in like one sort of medley of a mural. Um, and then one like as I got older, sort of towards the end of high school, it was kind of more of like a graphic design self portraity like – Oh, so you changed it. So I you... changed it, yeah. Every few years I would spend the summer holidays repainting my walls. So it's been nice to now to carry that on or to do that again with my children. And this time, well, the first mural that I painted in their bedroom was to prepare for their birth. Um, so I painted this mural of a stork flying over different parts of the land and um, there's certain areas that reference my Filipino heritage, certain areas that reference Sean's Indian background and the places that we visited in both those countries. And uh, New Zealand was one of our favourite holidays that we went on together. Um, and in, and in, in that mural, I had little family of animals. Um, and with each child, I would add another animal to the family. So I kept that mural. Oh, um, how, what were the animals? Yeah. There was a little family of elephants um, in India and Af- oh, Africa as well because that was our honeymoon. So that was part of the mural. And there was a little family of ducklings. And I had a uh, – because my husband's surname is Pearl. I had a clam that had pearls in it. So I would add, I would add a little pearl with, with each baby that was born. Wow. Yeah. So tell me about your Filipino heritage because your parents are migrants, aren't mm-hmm. they? Um, so did you speak um, – is it Tagalog? Tagalog? Yeah. I speak Tagalog. But uh, I have I've had a very I've had a bit of a roller coaster with um, how I feel about my Filipino ethnicity. I hated being Filo as a kid. I just hated it because I was different to all of my friends. Um, I was the only one in my class with brown skin and with a name like Marikit Santiago. It just you know when the teacher calls the role and they struggle at your name, you're just like oh god, just no one look at me. <laughs> Isn't it weird about how your name is so important about yeah. your identity? Yeah, I remember there was this um, 
some activity at school where we had to reveal our middle name and I was mortified. Like, because my, my middle name is my mother's maiden name and it's Sortijas, spelt with a J. The J has that her sound. And I was just mortified to share, to tell anyone that that's what it was because I knew no one could say it right. And mm. and I was right. I had like you know I had I'm I'm a, I'm a rule follower as well. So if you had to write it, I wrote it down. And my classmate sitting next to me was like, "What sorty just?" And then like laughed, and I was mortified. Mm. So it's just things like that that really, really made me resent my Filipino identity. And so then I refused to speak Tagalog. My my parents spoke Tagalog to me at home all the time, but I just would never respond in Tagalog. And yeah, I would always just say, "Ah, oh, I can't speak it. I can't speak it. I can't speak it." And then we went to the Philippines, and I met all my cousins, and I really wanted to, you know, hang out with them. And so then I was kind of forced to just, you know, just get over it and just talk <laughs> because I spoke my English was too fast, and that in the Philippines they learn American English. So I think my accent was way too thick for them as well. So I was like, I got to pick one. It's either talk slower in English or like try and find a way or just suck it up and speak Tagalog. So, and what was that like going to the Philippines when you were young? Oh, I used I hated that too. Because <laughs> <laughs> my my mum has she's got most of her family still in in Manila in Cavite in her province, um, whereas my dad most of his sisters have migrated to they're all in Melbourne. Um, so it's been much easier, and we would make more frequent trips to Melbourne than we would to the Philippines. So then we would reserve the summer holidays and Christmas for our trips back to the Philippines, especially when my grandmother was still alive. So we'd go there almost every year and spend almost the entire school holidays there. And because for my mum, and I feel like a brat now that I can um, I can reflect on it as an adult and as a mother and just be a bit more sympathetic <laughs> towards migrant parents. Um, but because, you know, we'd be going back so that my mum can reconnect with her family and care for her mother, we would really just stay at my grandmother's house and not really do anything. So we would just relocate for the five weeks. And my cousins would still have school because they go by the American school term. So they just have that couple of days off at Christmas and then they go back to school. So I'd really have nothing to do there. Oh, and it was before the internet. And it was before the internet. So did you draw? I get, yeah, I drew, I watched TV. Me and my sister would just like eat packet noodles all the time. <laughs> Our grandmother would just feed us, you know, she'd yeah. like periodically be like, are you hungry? And we'd be like, no, thanks, Lola, we're okay. And she'd just come back with fried chicken. And we're like, well, if there's fried chicken, you know. <laughs> she was, yeah, she was really sweet. And my dad would often, you know, use that time to work. He's an architect and he still had clients in Manila and, and old colleagues and old, you know, um, uni friends. So he would use that time. And so me and my sister would just be left with Lola, with yeah. our grandmother. So, I, yeah, I never enjoyed that either um, until later on when, you know, I tried to appreciate it more. And there was a very poignant trip where I was introduced to the folklore of the Philippines and it happened with first-hand experience um, where we came to my grandmother's house and stayed one night and I woke up the next night, the next morning, and I had a really swollen left eye, left thumb, left big toe, really swollen. Mm. Um, and we just kind of put it down to probably an insect bite or whatever. It'll go away. And it did go away because we spent the next two nights in a hotel so that my dad could still see clients. And then after those two nights in the hotel, came back to stay with my grandmother and it happened again. 
Really? And my uncle who um who wasn't who had we hadn't seen the first time, he was there this time and he said that's not an insect bite. That's um that's something else. We call he called it kulam, which is like a hex, a little curse. And he said that uh there are dwarves that live under the mango tree, which is right in front of my grandmother's house. So you can't come into the house without passing that mango tree. And you need to ask those dwarves for permission to pass by if they don't know you. So you need you didn't you didn't ask for permission. And I was like, but I didn't know, I didn't know I had to ask permission. <laughs> so he took me to a witch doctor wow. who, who confirmed his um suspicions and cast some sort of spells, made it go away, went away, and he gave me a little red um amulet thing to carry around with me that he put he put my initials on it so that's you know specifically mine and said that every time I pass by that mango tree any mango tree I should say tabi tabi po makikira anlang po which is excuse me I'm just passing by I'm not here to like you know I'm not here to harm you I'm just just passing by and then they'd leave me alone and so I do that now anytime and I still carry around the little red amulet thing and I've had one made for all my children and I've told them this story and I might have scared them a little bit but But I found it fascinating yeah and is that like a widespread view there that that sort of like um, those things yes I mean that's the duende the dwarves duende are one of many monsters or superstitions that are um widely and like really firmly believed because I come back here and tell that story and people just often are just like okay like it was sure. a mosquito. Yeah, just like shut up. You know, you're just trying to. But yeah, I'll, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you and, feel, and when do I talk to other Filipinos, they there's no questioning it. They're like, "Yep, that happened." Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think after that first experience with the albulario, every time we went to the Philippines before we went home, or you know, shortly. Yeah, a week or so before we went home, my, my parents would take me to an albulario just to make sure everyone was the okay, witch the witch doctor. Right. So it's sort of like a different way of living in a way because there's this extra sort of level of like the supernatural. Yeah, yeah, that people believe in as firmly as Catholicism and these two conflicting things exist side by side. Yeah, I think there are other cultures like that where they believe in, well, like the evil eye, for yeah. example, you know. Um, well, it also feeds into your work, I'm sure. Oh, but most anyway. definitely. That's why in this painting, my daughter, and in other paintings that I've painted, my daughter's holding a mango to refer to that story. Um, there's a painting of my husband in the background is a mango tree. Um, yeah. And it was kind of the first experience that I had in the Philippines that made me interested in my culture. Otherwise, I was always rejecting it. You know, I didn't want my name to be Marikit. Didn't want to have brown skin or black hair or brown eyes. I want to have blonde hair and blue eyes. And I want to add normal name, like, I don't know, Melanie or just something easy for people to pronounce. Um, but that was that, that experience in the Philippines. I was like, ooh, that's interesting. What else is there? You know? That's interesting, isn't it? So, well, let's get back to the um, trajectory of your career because <laughs> you did. We've had a diversion. <laughs> so, we, you did end up doing medicine. Oh, I did. So, what happened? Well, no, I had, I mean, that was a continuation of that, that childhood ambition. I went all the way, I picked all the electives in high school that would get me into medicine. Um, I sat the undergrad medical exam. Um, In the end, I got into medical science at UNSW and two weeks into it, I was like, oh no, this is not what I want to do. I don't know what I wanted to do, but I just knew that, I think it was just, I knew it was going to be too hard. 
and I knew that I didn't have it in me to want it that much to work that hard for it because I believe that if you do, if you really want something you can work hard like you, you can work hard to achieve it but I just knew that I really I actually really didn't want to work that hard to have to have it and I suppose that that would be like years of working that hard yeah and there, I had like the I had this conversation with um I was waiting for a lecture um, I was there a little bit early and we were that lecture was uh, with a guest lecturer and he was there early too. We just ended up chatting. He was um he was a doctor. I think he worked at the um what's the hospital near UNSW? The Royal Oh the, the Prince of Wales. Prince of Wales. Um yeah, so he was quite a senior doctor, he might have even been a surgeon, and we were just talking and he he asked me, What do you want to do? And I, I I said to him, I'm like, I don't think I want to do this and he was like I understand that and he said that you know as a woman you have to sacrifice more for this career than a man would you know you have to sacrifice you might have to sacrifice motherhood and he was the first person that ever put it in that way to me and I thought there is I'm not sacrificing anything for motherhood so all throughout childhood I always wanted to be a doctor but above all, I always knew that I was going to be a mother as well. Mm. And when he said it like that, I was like, you're right, and I'm not willing to sacrifice that. So much so that um, I didn't even let, you know, a university master's degree get in the way of motherhood. I had two children during my master's. Yeah, so. well, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, because you ch- so you finished your Bachelor of, of Medicine. I finished it. So you, even though three weeks in, you decided you didn't want to do it. My parents and most Filipino parents really prize academics. I think my parents also secretly really wanted to have a doctor in the family. So, you know, that gives you a lot of bragging rights with your mates. <laughs> um, and I'd been talking a big game all throughout childhood. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to look after you guys. I'm still going to look after them, just not with any <laughs> medical profession. <laughs> um so I really fought with them. They were very difficult years for me. Um, you know, a lot of anxiety, uh, a lot of stress. You know, I really wanted to make my parents proud. Um, but I really didn't want to do what I thought I wanted to do. And it's really difficult for someone like me who, you know, we were saying before that I'm a bit of a control freak. Like I really like to have everything planned ahead I like to know exactly what I'm doing and like that that was me in as as a young teenager I wanted I had a very clear trajectory of where my life was going to go I was going to finish high school and go straight to uni and do medical science or whatever it took to get me to medicine I was going to be a pediatrician I was going to marry my um my high school boyfriend and that would be life you know we'd have we'd have a family and that's 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 how it's going to go because that's how you, you just you, – if you just plan it, that's just how it goes. <laughs> yeah, and right. so to, to have that in my mind for years and years and years and years and then get to the, that last stage where you actually get to realise your dream and have, have it all unravel so quickly because I ditched that high school boyfriend too eventually yeah. um, was a really difficult time for me and just to not know – because I, I – I wasn't like, I don't want to do medicine because I want to do fine art. Like, that's not what I, I kind of searched for other things. And I suggested to my parents, you know, noble, noble replacements. I was like, maybe I can be a pediatric nurse. And they were like, no, you chose medicine. When you start something, you finish it. And so I really did. And they said, if you finish your degree, you can do whatever you want. So I finished that degree. 
And then I went to art school not thinking that that's what my career, how I was going to, you know, what I wanted. I think I just wanted to know if I could make it. And I didn't want to find some other career and have art on the side and then have this lingering thing like, what if I made it as an artist? So I really wanted to find out if I could make it. And what influences do you remember at that point when you were learning to paint? Like, what were you looking at? What artists were you looking at? Um, I, was, I guess I was kind of relying a lot on what my lecturers would show me. So, um, like, really early stages, like Egon Schiele. But that's not how I draw. I just liked, you know, that you don't have to draw um, to, the, to the exact likeness. Yeah. What about since then? Do you, do you look at other artists and art? Most or do you certainly, yeah. So now... Um, especially as I'm embarking on these really large-scale paintings, I'm really influenced by um, artists who are working in the Philippines, Philippine artists. So this, these large-scale large paintings are sort of influ- an influence from Rodel Tapia, who takes on these big, these like, you know, monumental-scale paintings, but also talks a lot about mythology. I find that really interesting. And also an artist named Jojit Solano, um, who takes on the political and the Catholic, and he he creates really dark scenes, um, which I find really compelling. Well, let's just jump forward a few years because since then, so since you finished your um, fine arts degree, you did honours and masters as well. Yep. Um, you know, you've won awards, you've been hung in several art prize, other art prizes, but you really, I think, rose to prominence with your Sulman prize winning painting in 2020 congratulations thank you it's called the divine and it was of course in that it was a painting of your three children and it was in that weird COVID year when everything got pushed back remember it was like I think it was May it was supposed to be and then it ended up being September yeah September or something like that was it a surprise for you when you won yeah, I mean, no, I don't know. I don't ever expect to to win. I mean, it's it, it's a surprise to be selected, you know, to get that email to say congratulations, you've been selected as a finalist. Like that, that's the first win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, actually, you know what? The work of yours, which first grabbed my attention, was that Sulman finalist painting the year before. Oh yes, which was called Tagsibol Tagsibol. Yep, and you know I still remember walking into that room and seeing that work because I thought I sort of saw it from afar. I thought, oh my god, what is that? That looks like a Renaissance painting. Oh yeah, I, you know? <laughs> and I go up closer and closer, and of course it's not. A, you know, there's all sorts of other things in it. You know, like a sort of cartoon figure and the basketballers and all this yeah. sort of thing, but. The thing that struck me the most, and I don't usually start talking about this until later on in the interview with an artist, <laughs> but the thing that struck me the most was the support was cardboard. And just for the listener, when I say it was cardboard, it is not, you know, like some sturdy art shop art cardboard. It is like packing box cardboard that has been sort of flattened the box and the tape is still on it, you yep. know. I was just absolutely shocked <laughs> Partly because it is—it just seems such a, an ephemeral sort of thing with this absolutely exquisite work on top of it. Thank can, you. Can you tell me a bit about that aspect of your work that you use? You you often use this material to work on. Um. So that response that you had is that's the intended response that I hope to get. Um. I find it really interesting when you marry material that has an inherent value or a value that we've ascribed to it 
And by doing something like putting a painting on directly onto cardboard, then it changes the way that we value that material. So that, that box specifically, um, that's the box that my children's bunk bed came in. So it's still got some of the packaging labels. I think it has my name, the delivery um, address, um, might even have a sold sticker on it. Um, but I, I like to use cardboard for a few reasons. The main reason is for the symbolism in that it has its own migratory experience because it's come from somewhere, it's gone somewhere else before it comes to me. Um, and it also references this long-standing tradition that Filipinos around the world still um, carry on is with the Balikbayan box, which is usually just a box that you know families would pack with whatever they might think their family in the Philippines would find helpful. So my mum would often pack grocery items, lots of spam, lots of toilet paper. She was on toilet paper before it was a thing. She'd send toilet paper to the Philippines. A lot of my old clothes when I was, uh, when I was a child and our old toys, she would send, pack those all up um, and send them to the Philippines, and that's called a balikbayan box. Um, so that's, that's the symbolism behind using the cardboard box but also just logistically I don't have a lot of space to work in here um, but my artistic desires want me to paint bigger and bigger and bigger so I need to work with material that I can carry I can lift I can fold I can manipulate so that it works within the space that I work in yeah right what did when you entered these things like did you physically take them to the art gallery of New South Wales uh yeah, I did. Did they? What did they say when you arrived in the packing um, room? Like, oh wow! <laughs> um, I usually, I'll often get messages from the gallery later. I guess when they've done their condition re- conditioning report, and they're like, "Is this tear meant to be there?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, it's there. It's fine. Don't worry. It wasn't you guys. <laughs> you know, is this meant to be creased like this?" I'm like, "Yeah, yeah. It's it's a box. Don't worry. It's meant to be like that." Yeah, yeah right. So and there's a lot of that. Well, we're sitting here in your studio now, and there is this huge, beautiful work um, called "Thy Kingdom Come," which is coming is going to be in your forthcoming show in only a few weeks' time. Mm-hmm. I feel so privileged to be one of the first people to <laughs> see it since it was completed yesterday. Yes today oh it's just divine and it looks so fragile to me I mean we we had to be careful didn't we that we didn't have the both doors open so that the breeze wouldn't is will not like the slightest breeze will yeah knock it over yeah so do you feel precious about it when you're actually painting on it are you very not when I'm painting um I don't feel I'm not very precious about my work at all I think art handlers are mortified with the way I handle my own work um but once I know if if it if it enters someone else's collection, then for me, I switch and I do handle it with care. But if it's like, you know, at this stage, this is still within my collection. I'm just like, yeah, do whatever you want. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah I get that. Yeah. And especially a piece this size, I've really had to like really quite rough, roughly handle it to work on it. Um, and actually quite late in the stage, I learnt the hard way that I should probably be a bit more careful with my work. Because I've had to fold this up, it's meant that sometimes the painting side is leaning right against the easel. And when I lift the easel up and oh, I push it up and down, it scrapes along the back of the easel. So a couple of weeks, last week I turned it around, there was a big scratch right down the centre of my son's portrait, right oh down my the middle. God. Yeah. I mean, I was going to fix it anyway because I wasn't quite happy with the, <laughs> the way I'd, you know, 
I'd rendered his face. It didn't quite look like him. Yeah. But then I was like, oh, this would have been less to fix if I was a bit more careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about the fact that your son's in this, that your all three children are in this, and this is a common theme in your work. Your work is very autobiographical, yes. very personal. And in this painting, your husband is in it, you are in it, and your three children are in it in three different positions. Um, there's overlapping happening. There's a beautiful background of banana trees and foliage. There's an eagle in the corner. There's a lot of imagery and symbolism in your work. Is that something that you really are drawn to? Yeah, I um, before I st- I think the hardest part of my process is um, forming the image in my mind and what I want it to say and how. So before anything happens on the canvas or in the studio, even there's a lot of just honestly just sitting around thinking, what's this next painting going to be about, and how am I going to say it, and what images I'm going to use. So there's always there's also a lot of um, research into what um what image I can use to get the symbolism that I want it to have so for example this eagle is a Philippine eagle it's endangered it's it's the largest eagle in the whole in the world um and it's currently endangered it's quite rare to see the Philippine eagle in in like in its habitat but it also links to the creation story the Philippine creation story of Malakas and Maganda So in the beginning of time, there was only the sky and the sea and the eagle. And the eagle was becoming tired of flying with nowhere to land. So he stirred up the sky and the sea to have a quarrel with each other. And that resulted in the islands of the Philippines. So the sky sky, um, threw down boulders down at the sea. And in turn, the sea brought up land towards the sky. And that's how we got got the islands. What a beautiful story. And um, so the... Eagle finally had a place to land and it was building a nest and a bamboo, a note of bamboo struck his foot and he got really mad so he pecked at the bamboo and it split in half and from each half of that bamboo was born the first man and the first woman of the Philippines. So they were born at the same time as equals and that's in such contrast to the biblical story of Adam and Eve. That's so true, isn't it? And this is something that you're exploring in this show coming up with um, your show at 4A. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Because the works that are going into that show are just absolutely exquisite. Thank you. Um, so the show at 4A continues my interest in the creation story of Adam and Eve and um, specifically the original sin from that story. Mm. So the Christian doctrine... I guess, is based on the principle that we are all sinners. We're all born with um, the inherited sin of Adam and Eve and only after we're baptised are we absolved of that sin. So as a parent and um, considering the things that are inherited from me, that makes me think, what do my children, what will my children inherit from me? Will they inherit my skin tone, um, will they (laughs) inherit my temper, (laughs) Um, you know, my talents or are they going to inherit my sin? Um, And I think Catholicism particularly really harnesses the sins of the believer and we are all always guilty. And as a mother, I am always guilty. Um, So this, this body of work and I guess my practice in general 
negotiates that guilt of being a mother and being an artist, um, but also challenges it. You know, why should I feel guilty for having the for wanting these things or for having these things? Mm. So, um, well, I think guilt is is inherent in being a mother. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think that um, you know, my, like as as the mother, we have more responsibilities that are projected onto us than the father. And like my husband is the most wonderful father, the most hands-on. He's amazing, but I'm the preferred parent. They just want me, you know, in the morning, (laughs) in the middle of the night, by morning, all five of us are usually in bed together with Sean down one end and the rest of us, like all three children, you know, heaped, heaped on me somewhere. And it's, you know, even though before bed, Sean will tell them the most elaborate, he'll just make up these wonderful stories, which I, I can't do. You know, he'll, he'll never tell you that he's creative, but he'll just make up these stories off the bat and he'll make the children laugh and laugh and laugh and they adore him. But in the middle of the night, they're like, nah, not going to your side of the bed, you know? Um, I know, isn't it weird? It sort of seems to almost be like an instinctive thing. Yeah. And in that way, it's such a privilege to be mm, a mother. Mm. Um but on the other hand, it, it goes back to, you know, what I was saying about homeschool is that Sean's got the stable career. He's the breadwinner of the family. Um, and because I've chosen this career, and it's, I guess, unconventional to most people, especially people who are outside of the, art, the arts field, um, this isn't conventional. And I feel that people consider me as just a full-time mum, even though... Even already, even after having won the Sulman. Oh yes, really? Yes. <laughs> so, I think a lot of people th- view what I do as a leisurely activity. Oh wow! Um, right. It's like no, this well, is a rigorous know, practice. Well, that's right. And you know what I really liked when you were when Benjamin Law interviewed you for the art gallery. I loved it when you said. Um, after you know you came back after maternity leave and mm. i thought good on you for saying that because you know you you decided to take that time off and you you alone decide to come back to work yep um and you treat it as work and i think that's really good to use that language yeah um i do i insist you know not that i no yeah i do insist on it because what i do is work and especially when um I'm taking my kids to school and I'm picking them up every day and I'm talking to other mums who don't work. Their husbands are also the breadwinners. They don't work. And they ask me what I did today. I'll be like, well, I worked until I came here. And they're like, what, painting? You know? And I'm like, yes, that's my work. That's what I do. Or if, it, or if it's like, oh, why didn't you volunteer to do the – to be at the athletics carnival and I'm like because I'm working man like they're like what painting so it's still like you know I I insist on using that language because that's what it is to me I'm not gonna I'm I don't need to change my language for you to accept me but also it's like you should accept what I like I'm sick of validating what I do to people but in those slight gestures you know by calling this work then I'm inserting myself as I'm a full-time artist and a full-time mum you know, every mum is a full-time mum, whether they work or not. Mm. Well, talking about the kids, they are a huge part of your work because they're actually your collaborators as well. Yes. Um, and in almost every painting, I think, there is some uh, element of your uh, children's work in there, mm-hmm. usually in the form of marks in the background of the work. 
What's it like? Like, what do you get out of that, having them around and, and helping you? Um, it is an absolute privilege. I, I don't want to be one of those mums that gushes about their kids, you know, like, <laughs> they're all right, they're all right. Um, but that particularly is something that is really, really special to me that I never envisioned as a, you know, I had big dreams of being a mother um, and it's as as good as I imagined it. But with this art and having, you know, my children part of my work is something that I never, ever envisioned. And how does it work? Like how do you actually? Uh, a lot of bribery for certain members of the family um, <laughs> and with other members of the family, just absolute passion. So my eldest just loves, she loves to be part of my work. She works very diligently and she'll come in here and she can work with me for hours or a few minutes. It's up to her. I let her decide. But more more often than not, she's here for an extended time. It started off as a way of um, introducing just visual interest in my work or visual, visual difference in my work because my technique, you know, is quite rigid. Um, I'm, I'm very – I find it really hard to be loose and gestural. I'm quite tight with my rendering of, you know, capturing a likeness. And then I don't really know what to do with the background if I'm not just going to fill it with what's in the background of the painting or if I'm going to leave it free. Um, So initially I brought on my daughter, who I think was two at the time or just turned two, to just put some marks in, um, just little scribblies. And, yeah, I found that to be a really interesting visual difference to have really refined oil work Mm. right next to very authentic, naive marks made by a child. And so it just kind of developed from there. It it imbues my work with the personal. Um, and you must feel like you couldn't do that yourself. I can't. That's why I brought in the pros. If I were to, <laughs> if I were to, you know, try and make a, like a scribble, I feel like I'd be like, oh, that wasn't right, I'll just fix it. You know, I just, it would be completely contrived, whereas very, theirs are very loose and just however they feel at the moment, I'm just going to put a mark there and that's, you know. Um, and each of them are different. And I think I'll see more differences as they grow up. So my eldest has always enjoyed it. She always loves art and she always loves, you know, being part of my work. She loves more than anything posing for my work. Well, and also they're so like kids now are so used to cameras everywhere. that's true. So it's not so hard to get them to, to be part of that. Actually, the photography part of it is really interesting because, um, that's a big part of the work. Yeah, because well, I work from photos, so yeah, exactly. It is. And also because we haven't touched on this yet, but you do appropriate work into your paintings. So, yep. like say, for example, in um, your recent Archibald painting, which mm-hmm. was finalist this year, which was fantastic. Thank this you. Self portrait, which is called Filipiniana. That was oh, I love that actually because it was like a combination of you know the Mona Lisa. And Frida Kahlo's mm. self-portrait with monkey, and you've sort of merged these two portraits of yourself in that pose, so they overlap. And then there's in this overlapping area, you've got this fantastic sort of negative, um, like X-ray style yep. blue and white section, which really adds a lot of interest to the work. And I'm noticing it is coming in your latest work as well. Um, but yes, yeah, so to, you have to, if if you are using these poses from famous works. The photography must be really important. Yeah. 
But it's very, it's also very, and I'm embarrassed to say this, is very lo-fi. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of, all right, Sean, get over here. You got to take a photo of me. Now, it's, and, and Sean's not, he's a lot of wonderful things, but he's not good at photography. And I can direct him and direct him and direct him. And it's still just like, yeah, but it's not right, man. <laughs> like, you know? So, yeah, it could be very, it's very lo-fi. Does he ever throw up his hands and just go, look, you do it? He, sometimes he's like, take the photo of me and then show me exactly what you want. Oh, and I'm right. like, but I thought <laughs> it's enough to just, and, I, and we'll do it. <laughs> and he'll be like, it's still not, you still didn't get it, man. But yeah, so there's a lot of that. Um, and a lot of like, ah, I'll just figure it out. Don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out on the, on the painting. Or just like, oh, I'll find one that I like. Because we'll take like 100 photos. Yeah, And there's yeah, only, yeah. They're just like micro things to adjust so yeah what about with the kids is that oh my god that takes forever (laughs) it takes multiple because they have a very limited time especially if i need all three of them together then it's a very yelly very like (laughs) you know shrill it's a very shrill experience for everyone um whereas if i can do each of them individually then it's like well two of you can go do your thing and i'll call you when i'm ready but, yeah. yeah, with them, I just expect that the first round of photos I'm not going to like or I'm not going to find anything. And so I kind of use that first round to then find where I need to adjust when I take the next round of photos. And we've found – I figured out this technique with the kids that if I hold the phone playing a video, usually of Bluey, right above the camera, then I can get everyone still and looking <laughs> in the direction that I need them to look. So you need an extra pair of hands, but it's worthwhile. That's a good tip. Yeah. So Gary Trin came and took some studio um, portrait portraits of us and I had some taken with the kids and there was a lot of, look here, Santa, you look here. Okay, Ella, now you, t- you look. And it was just like, look here all the time. You know, I was like, you know what? I know what will make them look there the whole time. And so we brought Sean out and Sean was holding the, <laughs> holding the, the screen just, just behind Gary. And everyone, because it's like a lot of the time is also like don't smile. It's just like have a natural face. Got it. Got the shot. Oh, excellent. (laughs) Excellent. But to get them to pose for for paintings takes a lot more negotiation because some are more willing than others. My boy, you got to get him in that right, in the right mood. And even if you have him in the right mood, you've got a limited time. This painting, Thy Kingdom Come, is an appropriation of Hieronymus Bosch's uh, Garden of Earthly Delights. And in each panel, um, you know, there's a garden or there's some kind of uh, plant life and some animal life. Whereas in there, in the middle panel with the children, the only animal life that is in there are in those little Disney characters for them. So uh, we've got um, Sisu, which is the water dragon from Raya, which is... um. Uh, a Disney movie that came out recently that was based on Southeast Asian culture. And we've got um, Squirt from Finding Nemo, which is Santi's favourite. He's got a little Squirt plush toy and he sleeps with it every night. And he's he's had it for he's I mean, he's about to turn six and he still sleeps with it every night. And then um, Stitch for my youngest. More because we think she's like Stitch. Stitch is like this little alien that was created and it just kind of like wreaks havoc and just destroys stuff. But they're kind of cute and, you you, you know, you're on board. Yeah, so they yeah, were yeah. like, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I just want to talk a little bit about the pro- your process mm-hmm. because I noticed in some of the works that you actually use pyrography, which is like burning into the work. And I, I think you even use it with these works on cardboard. Yep. Um, which, that's, haven't you, aren't you worried it's going to catch fire? Actually, with cardboard, definitely not because it's got so much wax in it. It's actually quite, um, quite difficult to really to, to burn as, as dark as I want it to. It takes quite a lot of pressure because there's so much. And, and on top of all of the primer that I've already applied onto the cardboard, I've got to melt through the primer first before I get to the cardboard. And then the cardboard itself is so waxy that I really have to apply a lot of pressure. It's actually quite painful. Yeah, I yeah. saw that on Instagram. I saw you did some video of yeah. it. And it looks like quite a heavy tool. So you have to pr- what, press it? You have to press yeah, really hard. To, to, to make it really burn on, on cardboard. On wood, different story. You've, I've got to be quite light. I've got to be light to control how much, how dark I want it to get. Oh, it's because you. So it's basically it, because you got so many layers of primer on it. Well, I always prime everything with the same amount of layers, but I think it's just the way that the cardboard burns and the way that wood burns. Because wood is just, you know, it's just the wood in there, but the cardboard has a lot of wax, a lot of acid, whatever it is that's in there. Is it harder to control the mark as compared to a brush? Oh, most definitely. But that's kind of what I'm going for as well. Um, yeah, it kind of allows it. it, it allows this extra element of texture that painting doesn't quite allow. Like painting gives me vibrancy and, you know, tone, but it doesn't give textural difference because I can create a lot of texture with all those melted bits, the melted primer. It all raises and I can get that texture. And tell me, with um, do you use a palette? Like are you holding a palette? Um, I... Oh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> I have a palette that I've had since childhood. It's like a palette that my parents gave to me. Um, and I cover it with baking paper and that's where I mix my, my palette. Yeah, right. So yeah. it's more or less a disposable sort of thing. So you just throw so away the So then I can just paper. chuck away the yeah, baking paper. I tried to. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Oh, there's also those disposable palettes. but it's, it's Yeah, but then the, it doesn't – like the paper will lift – on the other side, so I, I clip it. I mean, I could just clip it down on both sides, but you know, this this palette I think is that I have is longer than my art career. I've had it for longer Aww. than my art career. I've so had it since high school. So it's like sentimental, kind of. Yeah, it's falling apart, but it does the job. <laughs> well, yeah. And what about mixing skin tones? Because I noticed there was an Instagram post showing your mixing skin tones. Because I think that's quite a challenge too. Mm. Do you? mix them all at the beginning of the session and have all different tones or do you do it no, as you go I along? do it as I go and I assume that I'll get it wrong the first time. So then I rely on glazes, multiple glazes to correct the colour. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what? Do, and so presumably a glazing medium. Yep, just fat. Yeah, because I think that's a, a real challenge with portraiture mm. is skin tone yep. and, you know. Quite often I, like my first pass is usually quite blue and and when I'm correcting with glazes, I'm usually applying the reds, sometimes the yellows. I, I think I've got it. Look, my first pass is quite cool. So that will be a monochrome, that first pass? No, no, no. not monochrome. But oh, just, okay. I can just tell it's quite, it's quite blue. Or I'll have, to, I'll have to go back and correct it with, with the reds the, and the ochres. And, yeah. yeah. And with the composition, uh, will that be pretty much um, determined pretty strongly before you start it sounds stupid but I have a very clear 
image in my mind before anything happens. So everything has to form in my mind before before I even start looking for image references or start taking photos. I've got to, I, I, I like to have it formed very clearly how I want it to look at the end before I start sketching or drawing up anything. So it'll start with a drawing? It'll, yeah, but it's like a rough, like I can show you later. It's just, it's just scribbles. Um, makes sense to me. <laughs> um, but that's, that's how it starts. It'll start with just a, you know, really just to map out the flow where the figures should go. Yep. Yeah. And how do you, um, do you have any techniques that you use to see, think, to see your work with fresh eyes? especially when you've been working on a portrait? I don't. I think I have such limited time because really fresh eyes would be to just not look at it for a few days, come back later. But I just don't have that luxury to leave it for a few days. I've been working on this for nine months and I've been looking at it every day. for nine. Well, in the last – this year – I've been in the studio seven days a week. I have not had a break until oh this is done. God. I've been really? looking at it every day. So, um, do you, but do you ever take like photos and have a look at it on your phone? Does I do. that help? So that does help and sometimes it identifies areas that I need to correct. But also I'll look it at my phone and it'll go, that looks wrong and I'll come back into the studio and go, actually, it's correct. So, and, and that, that goes to say also that you really need to look at an artwork in the flesh because looking at an artwork on a phone just – it's just not the same. No, it's definitely yeah. not. That's right. Especially this work. I mean, I can't wait to see this in the gallery. Yeah, it is going to be, be stunning. Thank you. Presumably they're going to have it on a wall by itself. Yes. Yeah. That's it will, and it will be mounted. It's due to go to the framer on, on Monday to be mounted. So it'll be nice and flat, really straight. Oh, okay. Because at the moment we're sitting here and we're looking at it and it's actually, yeah, bent. Like it's like. <laughs> it's quite precariously <laughs> just like. It's like folding around the um, yeah. the, the uh, easel, which is making me slightly nervous. Well, yeah. I mean, most of the time that I've worked on this, I haven't had it open. So I've, I've only seen it oh. open. I've only, I'm only really seeing it open now. That it's finished. So you fold it I over. I fold it. So I've been working on each. Pa- there are three three panels. Oh. I've been working on each panel at a time. Right. So this is, it must be a great feeling seeing it all finished like that. Yes, but also like I- I'm waiting for the next stage. I'm never satisfied until I-, I can get to the very, very, very end of the finish line. You mean when you see it hanging in the when gallery? When I see it hanging in the gallery and the openings are done and I've done my speech and then it's just it's just there. Yeah. Then then I'll sell. then I'll really let look that I'll be loose then. <laughs> right now I'm still a little bit on edge. Right. Yeah. yeah. And well, even by then I just got to get started onto the next thing. Well, that's it. Like do you start like straight away start thinking about that? Are you already starting to think about the next thing? I am only because I know what my schedule's like, but normally especially Especially when I didn't have so much scheduled, um, I would normally take like four weeks off and just hang out with the kids. Um, And I will, but I also do actually need to start the next show. Well, I suppose the thing is, as you're saying, you know, there's so much thought process involved that you can be doing that while you've got your down tools, you know. You can be thinking about and look, I suppose, looking at imagery and looking mm. at works and sort of being. Well, you know, because I'm in here painting, like once I've decided exactly how the paint, how, what the painting will look like, 
what it means, the imagery that I use. Once I start the painting, I don't think about anything else except for the techniques of painting. So I'm not, my mind isn't occupied by, you know, conceptual. It's not occupied by finding more meaning or I'm really just Mm. painting. So I can use that time to think about what my next work will be. And I have been, so I know exactly what my next work will, will look like. Because I've had, exactly. you know, that time. You've got all that time to think about it. Yep. Now, I just want to talk about your studio because we're okay. sitting in this great space. It's your garage and it's, so it's got the door where you, you know, open for the car to come in and then there's another door on the other side. And I, th- I read somewhere that you often leave the door open while you're working. I what? always leave the door open when I'm working. Right. I need the light and the air, airflow. And do you use artificial light as well? I do. All the time? Yes. It's otherwise very dark in here um, and I don't um, – it's really hard to find the right light. Even if, if it's an overcast day, then I, I don't get any natural light. Like it's, you know, I get nothing. Yeah. So I really rely on the, the artificial lights in here, which aren't the best, but I just make do with what, what I can. So I presume your routine must um, fit around – school times and all that sort of thing Mm -hmm. so how do you so how do you find that you can get into the work quickly I just have to honestly um if I can do all of the domestic chores before I come out here then I know that I can then I I know how much time I have where I can just dedicate that time to the studio and you just get straight into it there's yeah there's no like warming up to it just just Open, op- that's my palette right there. Open the palette and roll. Yeah. Well, no I saw that. Time. I, you know, it's interesting because I think those those um, deadlines sometimes make you work more efficiently mm. as well, don't you think? Yes. It's it, the, you know, four hours, if I'm lucky, that I get in here are productive four hours. Would you come in after they've gone to bed? I'm, it's, I'm too scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, because it's too dark. It's dark and it's like... <laughs> Because I'm not going to open this up if it's night time. Then, you know, there's mozzie. I don't know. And oh, also, it's just my time. you have to have this open at, in it's the my, night. That's, like, that's my time to unwind. Yeah, right. I mean, and, it's, and it's not always my time to unwind. It's often the time that I use to do all my admin. So once the kids go to bed, then a different type of work opens. My laptop opens and I get to my emails. Yeah, and do you have a lot of that? Lately, preparing for this show, yes. What does that involve? Like what sort of things? Like that I'll be emailing about. Mm. Uh, for example, up, coming up to this particular show, we're um, producing a publication. So there have been a lot of emails back and forth about corrections, essays coming through, um, quotes for printing, you know, uh, public programs that have been scheduled for the exhibition. Um, so it's a huge production, a actually. Yeah. yeah. That's very exciting having yeah. all that happening. Yes. It's funny how with an artist, like, there's all this activity around the show and then it's quiet again for quite a long period of time. Yeah, until the next show. Yeah. yeah. Do you like that? Um, it can be overwhelming sometimes because it's particularly with this show, this is my first institutional show. It is the largest show to date of my career. It's um, I'll be showing for the first time my largest, like, singular piece of work, my most ambitious work. Um, it's very, it's all very deeply personal work and I've had no activity really for the last two years. So there's a lot 
weighing on this show. It's incredibly exciting, I've yeah. got to say. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, no, seriously, I, I, when I saw the images that came through, I mean, and I had only today seen this work, it is going to be a real knockout, this show, I'm Thank sure. You. And so I really, I'm, you know, I'm really hoping that a lot of people can get there. Um, it opens on the 26th of March, I mm-hmm. think, doesn't it? Yep. So thanks so much, Mary Kit, for your time today here in your studio. And I cannot wait to see this magnificent work on the walls at 4A. <laughs> me too, to be honest. Thank you so much for having me and, give, and allowing me this opportunity to talk so much. <laughs> what a great artist and warm person. If you're in Sydney, make sure you check out Mary Kitt's show at 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art. There's a link in the show notes for details. And her Archibald finalist self-portrait is also now on view at Cowra Regional Art Gallery in the touring 2021 Archibald Prize exhibition. Also, my latest video on the YouTube channel is my conversation with Aida Tomescu from episode 116. It's also now a 25-minute video, which includes lots of images of her work. So if you're a Naida Tomescu fan, and I know there are a lot of you out there, make sure you watch this. It's Aida talking about her whole approach to abstraction and painting, and there's just no one like her. You'll find a link to that video in the show notes, or just Google Talking with Painters Aida Tomescu. The video is ad-free. You can also subscribe for free and there are now 159 videos on the channel. Also, don't forget you can um, follow the show on social media. I'm mostly on Instagram, but I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as well. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I've never met the man but my paternal grandfather Mael, uh, Ismael my father would tell me lots of stories about him um, and his creativity and that he was the best drawer and all his friends would ask him to draw things and that's why my dad inherited that and that's why I've inherited it and also he was very dark skinned so I'm quite dark skinned in the whole family I'm, I'm the darkest um, and so I feel that I inherited my best features I mean, even though as a kid I really hated having dark skin, but now as an adult I'm like, nah, I like it. <laughs> um, but I feel like I've in- I inherited my best qualities from this man that I never met. And I even named our firstborn after him. So my grandfather is Ma'el. My daughter's name is Ma'ella after him. <laughs>